I have here the Bible, but along with my Bible, I have a manual that is for my home theater preamp processor. Now, here's, here's the sad part, okay? I have probably read this whole thing. And I say probably, there may be a few appendices that I have not completely read, but Mandy makes fun of me because if I get a piece of stereo equipment, home theater equipment, I, you know, we may be sitting watching TV and I'm over there reading my manual because I enjoy it. But here's why I do that. I mean, I enjoy it, but uh, I want to know everything that this thing will do. And obviously, as you can see, it does a lot. And there's still some things I don't know about this, but I know most of what this does because I have read the manual. I took time, and you could say that I gave careful attention to this manual, right? I spent time learning what it was. And that, that phrase, giving careful attention, is what I want you to lock in on this morning as we begin our time in God's Word. Give careful attention, give careful thought, the scripture says. We see in verse 7 of Haggai chapter 1, which we will be back in today, the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 verse 7 says, give careful thought to your ways. And that's important in many areas of life, right? Whether you're trying to learn how to operate your preamp processor for your home theater system, or maybe it's your finances, Right, planning for the future, budgeting your finances so that you have enough to pay bills, so that you have enough to do things extra, uh, vacation, time with family, all of those types of things, uh, budgeting your money, giving careful thought to your finances, or, or how about giving careful thought to managing your schedule, You know, taking time to make sure that you're balancing work and home, your family life. Uh, leisure time, you're getting time to rest and recoup so that you can be all that you need to be for your job, making time to serve God, to make sure that, that He is the priority in your life, in the center of your life, giving careful thought to your schedule. But not just that, choosing friends, giving careful thought to choosing friends, giving careful thought to what you watch on television giving careful thought to where you roam on the internet, right? All of these, this applies to really every area of life. And so it's important that we give careful thought to our ways. And this, this just so happens to be sort of a catchphrase for the book of Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. God's counsel to his people was through the prophet Haggai. His counsel is more, though than just a parent shouting, be careful to their child, right, when they're doing something that could be a little dangerous. This is more than just a quick warning before we do something that could be a little bit dangerous. This is a challenge. This was a challenge of God, from God to his people to really consider their lives and the priorities of their lives. He's really challenging them to reprioritize their lives because their priorities over a number of years have gotten out of whack. And so he's not just saying, hey, be careful before you do that. He's saying, no, you need to sit down and you need to really think about, you need to 
seek me and think about what it is that you're doing and whether or not it's what I'm calling you to do. Because, of course, they weren't. Their, their, their manpower, their resources that should have been focused on rebuilding his house, his temple, were being used elsewhere on good things even, but they had neglected God's house in pursuing these other things. And so they were just being these resources. Again, remember, these are the right people in the right place, initially doing the right things for the right reason, but they got off track. So they're still the right people in the right place. They're just not using their manpower and their resources to do the right things for the right reasons. They had gotten off track. And before we come out and blast the Jewish people for doing this, you know, if you'll remember last week, we talked about the condition of the city when they returned from exile. It was in ruins. The temple was in ruins, but everything was in ruins. They had no homes. The, the homes that were there before were in ruins. So they, they, what they were pursuing were, were good things. They were trying to provide a place for their family to live, so their homes were in ruins, and, and we, could, we could all agree that that was important, that they take care of that. So we can understand, I would hope, how they got distracted, how they got sidetracked from the mission that God had given them. Doesn't excuse it, they were still, their priorities were out of whack, but they, they got sidetracked because their homes were in ruins, as well as the city. The Jews' problem was much more serious, though, than just neglecting a building. It wasn't about the building itself when we're talking about the temple. The children of Israel had neglected God's presence. And we're going to look just at verses 12 through 14 this morning as we continue this series through the book of Haggai that's titled, Passionately Pursuing God's Presence. If you'll remember, the Jews have been in exile King Cyrus, when he comes to power, he orders that uh, the remnant of Jews go home, uh, back to their land, and rebuild the temple. God worked through Cyrus to make this happen. So this remnant goes back, they get started, the work is going well, but along the way they get distracted and they turn their attention to their homes and to other matters. And before they know it, 15 years has passed, the temple's still not rebuilt, they've got the altar set up on the foundation amidst all of the rubble, and they are offering sacrifices, they are worshiping God in the midst of the rubble. 15 years goes by, and God asks this question through the prophet Haggai, what is the condition of my house? He's trying to redirect their attention. God speaks through Haggai. He commands them to get started once again, to reprioritize their lives, to get started again rebuilding the temple. And if you look at the previous prophets leading up to uh, the exile, leading up to the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, prophets had warned the nation of Israel that they needed to turn their hearts back to God. In that case, they had ignored the prophets, defied God. They were unwilling to listen. They had outright defied the message God had given them. Here, thankfully, we see that that's not the case with the nation of Israel. Maybe they learned the lesson from their ancestors. They had gotten off track. The word of the Lord comes to them, and praise God, they listened and obeyed. They did what God called them to do. God spoke. They listened. They had They had been negligent of God's work. They had gotten off track. They had not done what God had called them to do. So they 
They want to please God. They hear the warning. They hear the message from the Lord. In their hearts, they really do want to please God. You get the idea that, that they, this wasn't even intentional. They just got sidetracked. They got busy. And once they realized the weight of what they had done, they say, oh, of course, we have to get our focus back. We understand what we've done wrong now, so we've got to reprioritize and get busy. And so they... The word of the Lord comes to them, they hear it, and they respond, and they do what God commanded them to do. They recognize their need for God in their lives, and in the same way, the reason we're going through this book is that we need, I believe, to be reminded of how desperately we need God's presence in our lives. The nation of Israel realized it at this point, and we need to realize how desperately we need God's presence. We need to listen We need to pursue him, and when he speaks, we need to obey him just as the nation of Israel with a sense of urgency just as we see them do in our passage today. We're going to see these actions that they they perform that teach us how to demonstrate a sense, not just to obey, but to demonstrate a sense of urgency when we're obeying God. And the first one is that the children of Israel listened and obeyed God. They heard the word of the Lord. They realized their mistake, and they obeyed God. Look at verse 12 of Haggai chapter, chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them. Now the first and maybe the most obvious truth here, maybe it's not so obvious, so I'm going to say it anyway, is that in order to hear God's voice, you have to be paying attention. you got to be listening. I mean, look at all the prophets that came warning the nation of Israel that God would punish them if they did not turn back to, to him. And they ignored him, they ignored, they ignored, and sure enough, invasion, captivity, and they found themselves suffering God's wrath. These Jewish people, God's chosen people, they, they obviously were paying attention because they heard the voice of the Lord through the prophet Haggai and they responded appropriately. Now you've heard the phrase, just do it, right? What's that a phrase for? What's that a, an advertisement for? Everybody knows what that's for, right? It's been around since 1988. Uh, the, they, the Nike company was looking for an advertising campaign that would boost their sales, and in 1988, they came up with that. The founder of advertising agency, Whedon Kennedy, Dan Whedon, came up with this slogan, and here's what's interesting. The, the way he, what, what, according to him, what inspired him to write this slogan was that there was a convicted killer on death row who was executed in Utah in 1977, and his last words were, let's do it. I mean, that's a little bit morbid, and I don't know that I would face that that way, but that gives you a little glimpse into the mindset of this guy. But that's what inspired just do it, the phrase. And it was magic to the Nike company. Their business grew tremendously. As a matter of fact, their business in the United States grew from 18% to 43% just as a result of this campaign from $877 million to $9.2 billion in worldwide, not just the United States, I said United States, but worldwide sales 
from 1988 to 1998. I would say the Just Do It campaign worked because we all still know what it means, and they still use it to this day. Now, think about this. If this tennis shoe slogan, inspired by a convicted killer, can elicit that type of response, how much more should the voice of God cause us to stop in our tracks and give careful thought to our ways when he speaks to us. But we listen to all sorts of voices in our lives, don't we? We listen to all sorts of things. We allow things, the winds to shift us in many different directions. But when God speaks, if we're not paying attention, we'll miss it. But if we're paying attention and we hear the voice of the Lord, our immediate response should be to obey. When God speaks to us through his word, there's only one acceptable response, and that's obedience, period. When God speaks, he's revealing himself to you, to me. And if we don't respond to that in obedience, then we're ignoring the voice of God. And, and you've heard me say this before, but the only acceptable response is obedience. You're either obeying or not. There's no middle ground. If you, any hesitation in obedience is disobedience. God expects immediate obedience from us, and he deserves it. And we see that in the nation of Israel. We don't weigh options. We don't examine the alternatives. We don't negotiate the terms with God. We simply do what he tells us to do. So you could say, when God speaks, just do it, right? Just do what he asks. Now, that's easier said than done, I understand. But the only acceptable response is to obey. Once the children of Israel heard the word of the Lord, they had to obey, and that's what they did. And God calls us to do the same. You know, we're blessed. You look at the Old Testament, the law. We're blessed to not be under the law anymore. I mean, we are free from the law. The law is still valid. The law still has a purpose. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he did come to fulfill the law. So we're not tied down by all of the rules and regulations that God's people were. We are free from the law. Of Christ, by Christ who met the requirements of the law. And there's great joy in that freedom. In Christian freedom, we're not limited by the law. However, we are guided by grace. And that's important to remember. You know, we can, we can easily, somehow we can easily manage to abuse that freedom we have, can't we? I mean, we do have freedom, but it's easy to abuse that. We go about our daily lives without giving careful thought to what we're doing and the consequences of what we're doing, whether or not our actions really reflect our relationship with Jesus Christ. It reminds me of a line from the movie Jurassic Park. I saw that movie years ago, and this line stands out. The scientist who discovered in this fictional story the DNA of the dinosaurs and figured out how to recreate these dinosaurs from this DNA is bragging to another cautious scientist who's a little bit weary of this, and he makes this statement. This, the cautious scientist says, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And that's a good guide for our lives and our Christian freedom especially. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And if it's going to affect our walk with Christ, if it's going to affect our witness for Christ, we certainly should not do it. Or we should do the things that maybe we wouldn't normally want to do because God calls us to. Not because we're bound by the law, but because of our relationship with Christ. Christian freedom affords us liberties 
that, that, that allow us to do more than we could under the law. It, it affords us uh, more liberties than we can count, but we cannot be so enamored with what we can do that we forget to think about what we should do. You know, think about it, you don't have to go to church to go to heaven, right? You don't have to give 10% of your income for God to love you. He loves you no matter what. You don't have to, we're not obligated to witness to people in order to secure our spot in eternity. We're not doing these things because we're obligated. We should do these things because of Christ's love for us and the grace that we've received and our desire as a result of that love to be obedient to God. It's still the right thing to do, but we do it motivated out of love. And the truth is, we're going to miss out on God's blessings if we let our sinful nature dictate our Christian freedom. Because that's the temptation. And when we allow our sinful nature to dictate what we do and don't do, we're going to, more times than not, do what we want, what feels good, and that's going to jeopardize our relationship with God. Not that we lose our salvation, but we lose out on the blessings of fellowship with God. So when we allow our sinful nature to dictate those things, it will drive a wedge between us and God, and we cannot let that happen. We should let Christian freedom appeal to this new nature, this new creation, this new life that you've seen illustrated through baptism, this brand new life that we have in Christ. Our Christian freedom should come out of that, be an overflow of that, and be dictated by that. And, and, and the life that God gives, the one that that gives thoughts to our ways in light of Jesus' love for us, in light of the grace that he has shown us, when that part of us gets control of our Christian freedom, it's no longer I don't have to or I have to. It becomes I'm free to. I'm free to do things that please God. I now have the ability to do what pleases God, to know him, to make him known, to obey him. Because I'm not doing it in my own power, I'm doing it in his power, in him living in and, through, in and through me. So no, I'm not obligated to go to church, I'm not obligated to give to the church, I'm not obligated to share the gospel, but the new creation in me gives me the freedom to do those things because God loves me and I love him and I desire to obey him. That's how it should work. And we see, although they are under the old covenant, we see an example of this in Haggai where God's people, because they loved him, they heard his voice, they wanted to please him, and so they respond in obedience to his commands. Important point here. Don't miss this, all right? You have to be able to recognize God's voice to hear him. It's just like, you know, I can be across the house and and maybe say loudly to one of my kids to come here, they recognize my voice, right? Because they've heard it before. They know me. If I don't know the voice of God, I'm not going to hear him. I'm not going to recognize it as God. And it may be stating the obvious, but maybe not. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you won't know the voice of God. And so let me ask you, before we go any further today, here in this room, watching online, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you don't, the rest of what I'm going to say is, is really not going to mean anything. Because if you don't know him, the only way to hear the voice of God is through Jesus Christ, who died for your sins so that you could be saved, so that you could be set free from sin. 
And in order to have a relationship with God, you have to accept that gift of salvation. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is who he is, that he died for your sins, that God raised him from the dead, and put your faith in him and ask him to come into your life and to forgive you of sin. If you will take that step of belief, of putting your faith in him, then you will begin a relationship with God. And your life will change. And suddenly, you will hear the voice of God. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time now. He's bringing you under conviction. And even as I'm talking, you're thinking, no, I don't know God. I don't have a relationship with him. Listen to that voice. It's God's voice telling you to turn your trust to him, to turn your eyes toward him, and to put your faith in him. Because if you don't know Christ, you won't hear the voice of God. You can't hear the voice of God. You have to know God in order to recognize him. The children of Israel knew God and they recognized his voice. They listened and they obeyed. Second action they take that we need to pay, give careful thought to is that the children of Israel feared God. They feared God. They feared God and the consequences of not pursuing his presence. You know, we don't like to talk about that side of God, the, the, the wrath of God the punishment of God, but we should fear God, a holy reverence, a holy respect for who he is. He's the God of the universe, all-powerful, and we see this group 15 years prior had just come out of severe punishment for disobeying God, and he will punish his people. We should have a fear, and we see in verse 12, part of the reason the Israelites obeyed was the people feared the presence of the Lord. They feared, you know, there's, you know, something that frightens me ever since I've, I've entered the ministry, especially as a pastor, is that it is possible, now hear me out, it is possible to be successful in ministry and still not have the presence of God in your life. That fears me. We've seen it, right? We've seen famous people. We see it today, preaching a gospel other than what we see in God's word. From the outside, they appear successful, and I'm not anti-large church. I think we need to reach as many people for Christ as we can, so don't take it that way. I'm not bashing megachurches here, but we see people with large followings leading people astray. Just because someone looks successful, just because a church looks successful from the outside doesn't mean necessarily that they have the presence of God in their midst. If they're following anything other than God's word then if they're obeying anything other than what God commands, then they're going to be absent the presence of God, just like the nation of Israel was. The children of Israel were living without God's presence. And the reason that fears me, the reason I'm afraid of that, is because I'm afraid of the consequences of living it without God's presence in my life. I've been there before in my life, and I don't ever want to be there again. I don't want to live out of fellowship with God. It is not a pleasant place to be. And so we need to be aware. The children of Israel, they were aware of that. They knew the consequences of continuing in disobedience. In one sense, their fear was motivated by guilt, rightfully so. They knew Haggai was right. They had neglected God's presence. The charges were true. There was no denying what he was saying because it was from the Lord, and they knew it was right. And this shook them to the core, and it produced within them a godly sorrow that led to repentance, which is a good thing. You know, when we understand the consequences, the weight of our sin, there is guilt that comes with that. Now, we who are in Christ, 
We've had our sins forgiven, but still we come under conviction when we're out of fellowship with God, and that guilt is a good thing if it leads to sorrow that leads to repentance. As, a, as someone who's lost, if you don't know Christ, the Holy Spirit brings you under conviction for your sin. You know that like all of us, you've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You've missed the mark, and there's guilt that comes with that. But the guilt is a positive thing because it leads to an understanding of your need for Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers. And if it leads to repentance, that leads to new life in Christ and freedom from sin. As a believer, it leads to having your relationship with Christ restored so that you walk in fellowship and experience the presence of God in your life. And that's what happens here. There's guilt here, yes. They knew that they had done wrong, but that sorrow led to repentance, full realization of God's justice and the consequences of sin, and and full realization of the absence of God's presence in their life. And so they feared, along with, because of their guilt, they feared the wrath of God as well. They feared the presence of the Lord. Literally, that means they feared before the Lord because they knew. He's a loving God, but he's also a just God. They knew God would punish them for their disobedience. Of course, it's true that we should be motivated to obey God because of our love for him and because he's a loving God, and that is absolutely true. And and that is a driving force. If If it's just fear of punishment, that will only last for so long. It is it's born out of a relationship with God and our love for him. So that's certainly true, but we should also be fearful. And I'm not trying to produce a bunch of people or encourage a bunch of people who walk around scared all the time. But listen, folks, we should fear the consequences of disobeying God. But we should be fearful of the consequences of not listening and obeying because he is a loving father. And just like any loving father will punish his children when they disobey, he's going to punish his children when they disobey. And so we need to be aware of that. And that should produce a holy reverence, a healthy fear of the Lord. The leaders and all of the people had that. Now think about it this way. If I were to tell you to go up on top, just right in front of the steeple, on top of this building and take a nosedive, most of you would not do that. Maybe some of our middle school boys would do that. And I'm listen, middle school parents, don't get offended. Mine's sitting right over there, and he's a middle school boy. I'm joking, obviously. But most people would not do that, right? Why would you not do that? Well, you will die more than likely. I mean, that's a healthy fear, right? It's the fear of dying or being seriously injured that will keep you from doing that crazy thing. I mean, you know the consequences. You may not know exactly what those consequences are going to be, but we've got a pretty good idea of what those consequences would be. And so we go through life that way. There are things that we don't, know, don't do because we know the consequences are going to be disastrous. Okay, And so that, that's in line with what we're talking about here. The healthy fear, the reverence of God as a just God, as a father who punishes his children, the consequences of my actions should motivate me. Not just that, but it should be a, a huge factor And why I obey God, because I know the consequences will be disastrous if I don't. I know there will be punishment if I don't. The leaders of the people of the nation of Israel united 
in obeying God's instructions, and they were motivated by a reverent, healthy fear of God. The British preacher Jeffrey Stuttered Kennedy said this. He said, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's obeying in spite of consequence. Now, faith is so much more than that, but that's a great statement. It's obeying in spite of consequence. Now, think about that. It's obeying regardless of what others will think, right? Noah, he did something that was crazy to everybody around him, but he obeyed despite the consequences. But it's also obeying in, in regard of what the consequences could be if I don't. You know, if I don't obey God, what will those consequences be? Because the earthly consequence of obeying God, whatever that is, whatever embarrassment, whatever discomfort that could be, in this earthly life, pale in comparison to the eternal consequences of not obeying God. And not Listen, even if I'm a born-again believer, my eternity is secure, but there are rewards in heaven, but there's also lives at stake, and if I don't obey God, how many people won't hear the message of the gospel? How many people's lives will be negatively affected by my disobedience? There are eternal consequences for disobeying God. He is the Lord of hosts, after all. This title is used 10 times in this book, and intentionally. It means the Lord of heaven's armies, the God who is the supreme commander of heaven's armies, the angels, all of heaven, and earth. And we need to have a healthy, reverent fear of God and the consequences of not obeying him. The children of Israel listened, they obeyed, and they did so because of their love for him, but also their fear of him. And God gave them awesome assurance as a result. Look at verse 13. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I'm with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Now think about this, okay? Verses 12 and 13. Is the temple rebuilt yet? No. What happened between verses 12 and 13? What's the only thing that changed? The children of Israel listened and they obeyed. They got got to work. And what was God's response? I'm with you. Now, what were they missing before that? They were missing the presence of God. So all they had to do was listen and obey, and God met them where they were. They listened and they obeyed, and God met them. If we, this, is, this is great news for all of us, right? If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if he is speaking to you to, through the Holy Spirit right now, calling you to himself, all you have to do is turn to him in faith and he will meet you where you are. You don't have to fix yourself up. I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, when I get my life in order, then I'll follow Christ. No, it doesn't work that way. You can't do that on your own. You don't have to do that on your own. You turn to him, he'll meet you where you are, and as long as you will depend on him and trust in him and listen and obey him, he'll make you what, you want, what he wants you to be. For those of us who follow Christ, if there's something in your life that you are pursuing that's causing you to be absent of the presence of God, and he's speaking to you right now, all you have to do is turn to him in repentance, asking forgiveness of the sin that you committed that separated you from him and your relationship with him, and turn to him, and he will meet you where you are. And you will instantly experience his presence once again. You don't have to get on a waiting list, take a number, it's none of that. If you turn, if we turn to him in repentance, he meets us. And we, that, that relationship is restored, the presence of God 
once again is experienced in our lives. The Lord had been grieved and angry at his people, but the moment they repented, the very minute, the very second they repented, he met them where they were, and they experienced his presence. So what does the assurance that they have mean to them? Let's think about it. Number one, it means his promise to be with them means that their sins were forgiven, right? Because if that wasn't the case, he wouldn't be with them. Their relationship would not be restored. Their hearts were now pure, which is a wonderful thing. God's anger had now been relieved. He withheld. His anger stopped because they were obeying. They were reconciled to each other. And then God's blessing was now on them. And it would be, as we see, as they go about rebuilding the temple. God's blessing was on them. And something else to think about. Nothing but stubbornness stood between them and God's grace and mercy before this. Nothing. All they had to do was confess their sin and turn to God. And he would be with them. Once they did that, God assured them of his love, his mercy, his presence in their lives. Not years later, not after they had proved themselves for a while, not after they had passed a certain test, all they had to do was repent, turn, and confess their sin, and he was with them. And the same is true if God is calling you to repentance today. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, not just some of it, not just part of it. He will completely restore you if you are lost. He will completely restore you if you are disobeying him. I once read where a children's specialist talked about uh, those kids who are diagnosed with serious illness, terminal illness even. Those children, this study, and I don't know all the details of the study, but uh, this study indicated that if children who had been raised to obey their parents, those children were much more likely to have success and recovery than children who didn't. Now, why do you think that is? But you got, there's rules you have to follow when you're under treatment, right? I mean, that's the most obvious thing that comes to my mind. And you know, when you think about that, when you see the commandment for children to honor their father and mother, you know, we think about that as just loving our parents, maybe, and doing it because we love them, but we don't necessarily think about it as an issue of life and death, but it is. One of the reasons that's so very important is because if you're going to be a citizen that survives in life, you've got to learn to follow rules, right? Follow laws, obedience produces life. I mean, it's the children of Israel, they they listened and obeyed, and that saved their life, and it's the same with us. Now listen, don't misunderstand, this is not a works-based philosophy here. We are saved by grace through faith. But if we truly are saved by grace through faith, we will obey God, and so it's faith and obedience. That word faith in our English language loses something. Faith, as we read about it in James, which we're going to go through together as a church, faith means believing and obeying. You cannot separate the two. If I truly have faith in God, I will obey him. So it's faith and obedience that saves my life. It's faith, putting my trust in Christ, the act of faith that appropriates the salvation that he accomplished. He does all the work. He brings me under conviction. I would never choose him on my own. I I put my faith in him so I experience his salvation, but that I experience that life-saving gift through my obedience to him. It's those two things together. Obedience can save your life. And, and, and again, I'm not talking about whether or not you're saved or not. That's through 
faith. That's the grace of God. But obedience is how we experience the life that God has given us and how we experience the joys of his presence in our lives. If, if we believe God, if we truly believe in him, his power, his ability, then we will love him, we will fear him, and we will obey him. The children of Israel heard the word of God and they repented of their sins. They obeyed him and then the children of Israel went to work for God. They immediately go to work. They had neglected the building of the temple and they realized their mistake. They repented of their sin. They turned back to God and immediately got to work. Look at verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of Yahweh, the God of hosts, their God. Let's not miss this part. The children of Israel needed to get to work, and they did. They didn't hesitate. They'd wasted enough time. They immediately got to work. They didn't, their unfinished weekend warrior projects at home, do-it-yourself projects, had to stop, had to be put on hold or go away, go away altogether. They knew they needed to serve God. They weren't serving God, so they immediately got to work doing what he had commanded them to do. Their priorities were back in order. Their priorities were out of whack before. Now they're back in order, so they're doing what God's called them to do. God was back in his rightful place in their life, first but at the center of their lives. Everything they did in their lives revolved around their relationship with God and his commandments on their life to them. Getting to work on his house was top priority for God. And so that's what they did. They, they then learned something about obedience. Obedience will always bring further truth. When God speaks and I listen and obey, he's going to reveal more of himself to me. I will learn more about who he is. John seven seventeen. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching... Know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. I learn more about God. I learn his truth. And further, truth brings further responsibility. When God reveals himself to us, he's calling us to action. He's showing us more of himself. He's showing us what he's doing in the world around us. And he does that for the purpose of showing us how we are to be involved in that work. When we obey God... We grow closer to him, and when we grow closer to God, we learn more about him and what he's doing in the world around us. And then as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, he will call us to bigger and better things for his kingdom. And he calls us to be involved in bigger and better things for his kingdom. But remember, God has promised to be with us. That may be a scary thought on the surface. God's going to give me more to do, more responsibility, you know, more accountability, you know, I don't have the ability to do that. Well, you're right. None of us do. But he promises to be with us even to the end of the age. In Matthew 28, 20 and other places in Scripture. Psalm 46, 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So with God's presence comes his power and strength to do what he's called us to do. We just need to realize how desperately we need his presence. So this week it's Anna Shirley's turn. She was going to help me last week, but she ended up going to her grandparents' house. So Gracie stood in, and I'm still thankful for that. But, Andy, you need to, you need to step up, or I ask you to step up and, and help me. She doesn't know what I'm asking her to do, which is always a scary thing. Isn't that right? But this is going to, <laughs> it's going to be fairly easy. Okay, here's, I've got a plate here full of quarters, all right? I've got an empty plate here, all right? 
And, and I'm going to give you 30 seconds to, one at a time, with one hand, put as many quarters in this plate, from this plate to this plate. You can only use one hand and put them in this plate. And when that 30 seconds is up, we'll see how you did, okay? So hang on, hang on. Give me, are you ready? On your mark, get set, go. I hear y'all counting. Doing good. Oh, that little stumble may have hurt you there. All right, keep going. Five seconds. Time. All right, let's see. We're going to count them, all right? One, two, You got 29 quarters. That's amazing. Good job. Okay. We're not done yet, though. Okay. All right. We're going to do it again. But this time, I'm going to, there's a little bit of a twist. Okay. You ready? Hold your hand out like that. All right. Here we go. (laughs) I'm not being mean, y'all. I hear you out there. This is not cruel. Okay. Is it too tight? No, it's good. Maybe it needs to be tighter. No. No? All right. All right. Now, you're going to do the same thing, but you can only use the fingers that are not your thumb, okay? Your thumb's tied up, right? You can't use it. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds again. You ready? On your mark, get set, go. There you go. You got it. She's doing good. No pressure. Oh, we'll count it. Y'all help me remember that one. Keep going. Time. Okay. So there's one on the floor, right? (laughs) You can use your other hand. (laughs) All right. So we got, for this, we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. What was it before? 29? So is there any doubt that you did better with your thumb than you did without your thumb? There's no doubt. You did better with your thumb, right? Have you ever hurt your thumb and had it in a cast? You realize how bad you need your thumb when you can't use it, right? Tying your shoes, all these sorts of things. I know you're ready to get that thing off. I'll let your mom help you in a minute. But thank you, baby. You can sit down. (laughs) Thank you, Annie. So Annie showed us in a very real way how desperately we need our thumbs, right? We need our thumbs. Without our thumbs, we can do some things, but we can't do a lot of things. And the same is true when it comes to God's, we desperately need God's presence, And that's not to say we can't do some good things without God in our life. People can do good things, but we can't do the kingdom work he's called us to without his presence. We desperately need God's presence because with his presence comes his power and his ability. And while we may be able to do some good things without him, 
There's no limit to what we can do with his presence in our lives. We desperately need God's presence. And the nation of Israel realized that the obedience of the leaders and the people was the result of God working in their hearts. Just as he had worked in the heart of King Cyrus to get them back and get them started. And and how he had worked in the hearts of the exiles, that remnant that returned 15 years earlier when they began the work and started so well. And just... As they they had, as we read in Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. They started so well. God was working in and through them. And he'll continue to do that for us today if we will pursue him, if we will obey him. Philippians 2.13 assures us, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And he will finish the work he started if we obey, if we follow him. And if we're going to please God and effectively witness to an unbelieving world out there, then we have to hear his word and believe it and act upon it, no matter what the circumstances may be. Now, real quickly, I want to show you, what does it look like? Just a couple of things. What does it look like when we are working for God's presence? Because that's what this is all about, pursuing God. Well, first, it means you accept Christ as Lord and Savior. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you accept the gift of salvation, put your faith in him, you'll be saved. So it means accepting Christ. It means maintaining unity within the body of Christ. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And we, have to, we can't take that for granted. It means ministering to the suffering. Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Ministering to those who are hurting. It means making disciples. We accept Christ and then we are disciple makers. We are now fishers of men. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And he promises to be with us to the end of the age. It means we flee immorality. When we have the temptation to do something, God will give us a way of escape. He gives us the strength to resist that temptation, and we obey him, and we depend on him, fleeing immorality, and then maintaining holy relationships so that we will be encouraged to grow. We will be discipled. Not only are we discipling, we are being discipled through those holy relationships and growing in our faith. These are ways we work for the presence of God. There was a typhoon in the Philippines in 2013 that was devastating. Some of you probably remember that. It was Typhoon Haiyan. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It was known to the Philippine, in the Philippines as Super Typhoon Yolanda. That just sounds serious, right? Super Typhoon. And that, the reason it was called that was because it was one of the most powerful tropical storms ever recorded. On making landfall, Haiyan devastated portions of Southeast Asia, particularly the Philippines. It's one of the deadliest Philippine typhoons on record, killing at least 6,300 people. That's how deadly it was. But there was one rescue story. Many, but one in particular. A programmer by the name of Lakim Wong obeyed instructions, and headed inland just as the typhoon approached. And here's what he said. 
He said, obeying orders saved my life. Many people didn't. They couldn't or they didn't. After Hurricane Katrina, they did a study of why people refused to evacuate from hurricanes. And we experienced that where we live. There were a lot of people who didn't evacuate. They'd been through them before. They just weren't going to leave their homes. And here are the reasons, the most common reasons people don't heed the warnings and evacuate. Some think they can ride out the winds and surging waters. Others simply have nowhere to go and no way to leave. And that's certainly the case in many cases, many instances. Still, others remember unnecessary evacuations. We almost did not evacuate for Katrina because we had evacuated so many times in the past two years, and it was for nothing. And that's the case for many. They've been there before. They evacuated, and really the forecast wasn't accurate. They really had no need. So they developed kind of a boy who cried wolf mentality, so they don't evacuate. Thankfully, we did. Some people just don't, be, don't perceive the risk to be that high. So let me ask you this as we close. Have I failed to consider the risk of not heeding God's instructions? Am I ignoring the warnings? Because he's patient and he's loving and he'll warn you if you're living in disobedience. Is my own comfort of greater importance to me than the work of God? Is my own comfort more important than God's work? If the answer is yes to any of those things, then let me encourage you, turn right now, ask for forgiveness, and get busy doing God's work in your life. Because if you will, you will immediately be overwhelmed with the presence and power of God. Obey Him. Put Him first. Put Him at the center. And if we do this, we can be assured that God will be with us And as Romans 8, 31 says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of your presence. If we will listen and obey, if we will turn to you in obedience, faith and obedience, you will meet us where we are. And that is true the moment we receive salvation. And I pray if there is anyone here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would turn to you right now in faith inviting you into their lives, recognizing that we, like us, like all of us, they've sinned and fallen short of your glory and that you provide forgiveness. If they will just trust in you, you will meet them. You will give them new life. You paid the price for our sins, your death on the cross. You paid the price that we could not pay. Your resurrection gives us assurance of eternal life. For those of us who know you, Lord, just speak to us in this moment. Is there an area of our life or areas where we're not obeying you, where we're not pursuing you, where we've let something else take your place, even something good? Is there something that is keeping us from experiencing your presence? If it is, Lord, just bring us under conviction in this moment. Speak to us. Lord, I pray that like your people, as we just read, I pray that when you speak to us, that we will listen, we will turn back to you, and we will obey you. Whatever that is, Lord, just speak to our hearts. God, we love you. We're here today because we love you, because we want to honor you, because we want to worship you. Our motivation is to see your kingdom work done, but many times we get in the way of that, unintentionally sometimes. 
So, Lord, I just pray that you would draw our hearts together, focused on you, that you would unite us in your love, in your presence, and that we wouldn't allow anything to stand in the way of experiencing you working in and through us to fulfill your kingdom purpose. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?